Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today I'm delighted to have as a guest Dr. Lucy M. Long, who has been for many years involved in a lot of my favorite things, ethnomusicology, one of them, and the other one, food and culture. Welcome, Lucy. Lucy and I have known each other for, I don't know, maybe a couple decades through National Association for Interpretation. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes. Yeah, and I was trying to remember exactly when the first conference I went to was. I think it, I think it was 20 years ago. Where was it? Vancouver. Vancouver. Would have been around 2007. Oh, really? That late? Yeah, two, 16 years ago. Well, that's okay. a while. So it's not two decades exactly, but it's getting close. And yeah. and I will tell you, part of my fascination in talking to Lucy is quite simply that she's a great fiddle player. And we share a love for, I think, uh, the genres of music. I don't know what you call it. I call it uh, old-time, traditional, Americana, folk those of us who play it usually just call it all time, yeah. you know, but all time, you know, can that can refer to rock and roll yeah. <laughs> too. So, you know, so sometimes to be more specific, I'll, I'll say it's like traditional Appalachian mountain music. Absolutely. It's not, you know, it's also the kind of thing that little house on the prairie, you know, Pa was playing fiddle, you know, so it's, you know, traditional dance music and kind of the, the home homegrown music. Of rural America, uh, very very strong southern southern influence, which you know, which means there's a lot of African American influence in there, you know, yeah, some gospel absolutely. music and syncopation and all. Yeah, and I I'm a mandolin player, but not at the skill level that anybody would want to hear. But uh, I I certainly enjoy jamming with folks like Lucy. The other part that we're going to talk about today is food and culture, another one of my favorites. Uh, I've eaten food my whole life. Uh, we'll confess right at the front. Uh, I'm worse than that. I enjoy food too much. And so <laughs> I, and I love it when it's combined with good interpretive programs. Where did you grow up? Did you think you were going to be doing the kinds of things you're doing in your career? No, you know, I was, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Um, and my my father's from the mountains, and and my grandfather had a house outside of Asheville, um, you know. So I spent spent a lot of time with my my mother's her her family, her parents. They were in Central North Carolina, um, and then my summers and lots of vacations were always up in the mountains. I felt at a very young age, I was very aware that there were tensions between the two. And so, you know, my country club cousins, <laughs> you know, in, down, down near Charlotte, they would make fun of my hillbilly cousins. And my hillbilly cousins would make fun of my country club cousins. And I I was able to pick, pick the best of both, I felt. Sure. Um, you know, but... I kind of I kind of enjoyed the mountain stuff more. I didn't have to dress up and you know and and sit quietly in the corner. <laughs> I could be out roaming around in the mountains. So then when you went to college, where did you go and what what were you studying? Third and fourth grade, we moved to Northern Virginia. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, that's when people started pointing out that I talked funny and we ate funny food. <laughs> so and then fifth grade through the end of high school, and then actually a year after after high school, um, I lived in, I lived overseas, mostly South Korea. Um, my, my father was an economist for the State Department. So we lived in South Korea. Um, I went to boarding school the last two years. Um, and my mother was, she was, she, she was then sent to Taiwan. And my father was working in Vietnam for several years. So, and then after I graduated from, from high school, I actually went to Vietnam. This was 1974. Wow. So, <laughs> so I started college 
um, an anthropology class in the Marine barracks in Saigon. I missed, I, I got to be in the class because I, I missed the final because um, the building where I was living with my father, it was downtown Saigon and it was closed off with barbed wire and you know there was shooting and stuff out in the streets. It, it turned out it was an uprising against the South Vietnamese president, you know, by, you know, by, by citizens, you know, rather than North Vietnamese coming in. So, right. so, you know, so that's how, that's how I started my academic career. <laughs> so it must have been yeah. to come back to the U.S. and go to a college in where, Pennsylvania? It was, well, I went to Davidson College in North Carolina. Oh, okay. Uh, that was familiar, you know, familiar territory to me. Um, you know, but it was, it actually took a little while for me to get there, you know, because I'd had all these experiences overseas and came back to the U.S. and didn't really know how to fit them into, into a career, you know, or, you know, what to study. Um, you know, and when, when I was a kid, I always, I think I always thought I would be a writer just because I, I loved reading, I liked writing, you know, but Whenever anyone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be an explorer for the National Geographic. Oh, gee, that's a great one. Which really threw people for a loop. You know, I was I was very petite. You know, this long blonde hair, and my mother would dress me in these like Alice in Wonderland dresses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I wanted to be Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones, or maybe Jane Goodall. <laughs> Jane Goodall, yes, definitely. There's a petite so. one, yeah. Um. <laughs> so, and you know, I just I I loved exploring, and I was just kind of always always curious, and I think because from a very early age I was aware that I had family that didn't like each other because they thought they were they belonged to different cultures. It right. made me very aware of. Um, of cultural differences, you know, so, and, and it just, it made me very curious about things. So, so in college, I actually, I actually dropped out for a year and, you know, cause I didn't know what to study. And I was living in my parents' basement. They were, they were back from somewhere, Yemen or, or someplace where they had been living. <laughs> so, so they were in Northern Virginia and and while I was there, I had the good fortune. I ended up doing um, volunteer internships at the Library of Congress, the Archive of Folk Song, where I learned about folklore. Um, and then also at the Smithsonian Institution and in the Musical Instrument Division. And so I, I learned about ethnomusicology. You know, so I was I was fortunate enough to drop out of school but then have a place to land and then just happen into these into these volunteer internships. You know, so when I um, graduated from Davidson, I already had a very good idea of what I wanted to do. You know, so I um, actually worked as a secretary at the Smithsonian for a little while and then went to Memphis, Tennessee and worked in the Center for Southern Folklore down there um and then and then came back up to the dc area and i did a master's in ethnomusicology at the university of maryland and then a phd in folklore at the university of pennsylvania that's a great background i i envy you in a way because um i grew up playing a trumpet in the band in the kind of the normal trajectory of third grade they give you an instrument and you play in it mm -hmm. through your high school career. Uh, but I, my senior year in high school, I had a foreign exchange student from Spain live with me. And he was a mandolin player and brought along his mandolin. And so I learned just a little bit about mandolin, but I really knew, didn't even, I couldn't have told you it's G, D, A, and E. And, mm -hmm. but I went to college and I had buddies in a trailer court, one who was uh, to become an ER doctor, but while he was finishing his degree, he learned to play fiddle. He he practiced every day and he got really good at it. 
And uh, uh, he, he was living with a guy who would be a professional banjo player for a number of years after he came back from the war in Vietnam. And so um, wow. <laughs> I, I sat around and played guitar with them playing a little bit because I could do the chords. But I and I, then I got acquainted with the director of the museum at Southern Illinois University. And when you would ask Dale Whiteside what his background was, he'd go, I'm an ethnomusicologist. I go, whoa, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I've always, because for me, what I hear when I hear that word is not just culture and music, but interpretation of culture and music, because why would you study that relationship if you aren't going to tell people about it? Right. You know, I was, um, when I, when I started my degree, it was, 1981 and 1982, I think. And I was very active in the Society for Ethnomusicology. It was just, it was kind of just getting off the ground um, in some ways at, at universities. And I was a little bit disappointed in that it seemed to me there was not very much interpretation. It tended to be, people wanted to prove that you know, that exotic musics had a logic to them. So they were doing a lot of musicological study of other musics to prove to people that, you know, these are sophisticated systems. So that's, you know, that, that's something that's good, but that, that doesn't speak to anyone except other musicians. Um, and the people who are coming more at it from an anthropological perspective, which was actually what I was interested in, but the people I was studying with, um, we're kind of very anti-anthropology. <laughs> there, there are a lot of personalities in there. Yeah. Well, and you know, one one of the I, it's not really a regret in life because I had lots of other opportunities when I was at the University of Maryland. But Bruno Nettle was teaching at the University of Illinois, and he was very interested in folk music very interested in combining an anthropological approach with a musicological approach. And I, I talked to him about going out to, you know, to that program, and it probably would have been better suited, you know, for some, some of my interest, um, you know, but I was able to keep working at the Smithsonian and the Library of Congress wow. while I was at, at Maryland. So, you know, and in some ways it was, it was really working at the at the the library and the Smithsonian, you know, where I started seeing interpretation. People didn't didn't usually use the use that word, you know. But um, I'd, I'd introduce music groups, you know, when there were like you know exotic musics, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and I I use exotic with quotes, <laughs> so. Um, you know, and I was I was trying to figure out. I always thought of it as audiences who are unfamiliar with this music. They don't know when to clap, you know, or how loud, you know, and why. And you know, so that was kind of like the, the first thing, you know, help help them help them know what to listen for in in this music. Um, you know. And and then then help them move into what does this music actually mean for the people who grew up with it, you know what does it do socially for them, and then I started realizing, like especially with old time music, I remember sitting outside. Um, I don't know if you know who Alan Jabor was. He was a very very famous fiddle player and and collector of old time fiddle music. So and he was he was director of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And I'd sit outside at lunch with him and there were a couple of other people and he, he'd play the fiddle and we'd follow along. And I remember someone coming over and saying, why do you play the same tune over and over? <laughs> so, well, and, and we actually were playing the same tune in like 17 times, you know, because yeah, that's, yeah. that's what we do in old time music. You're learning by ear and everything, sure. you know, but it also, um, the tunes all sound the same, 
you know, we played everything in the same key because the fiddle's tuned to each key and the banjo's tuned to each key. So we stay in the same key for three hours <laughs> and and the tunes all have basically the same structure, you know. So, you know, so I guess, yeah, you know, it makes sense that people would think we are playing the same tune. So I started realizing, you know, the explanations that I would give to people for this exotic music, you know, Indian music or Indonesian, we actually needed that for music people thought they were familiar with. I talk about bluegrass or classical music, even. And, and you know, so that was actually kind of my, my first forays into interpretation, although I didn't, I didn't know that there was an actual field around it. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any any formal strategies you know I was just trying to figure out what works for me you know um and and part of it was growing up I was always well in, in the mountains every Friday night we had a barn dance you know it was this old time you know mountain round dancing and um you know they, they call it square dancing but it's not the kind of square dancing with fluffy skirts and all you know um you know and for some reason I loved it and I love to dance, and I go down there and be fascinated by by the music. One of my one of my sisters loved it. One one of my brothers loved it. One hated it, you know, and just and and did not want to go. And and then I started finding, especially when I lived in Korea, the Korean folk music just really drew me. You know, I'd hear someone playing the PDs, like this little reed oboe. Uh, something people would sit up in the mountains and play this, you know, and and, and it, it just, it drew me. And, you know, all my friends would say, oh, come on, <laughs> let's go, let's go. And I wanted I always. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so, so part of what drove me actually um, in education, I was trying to figure out why, you know, why does this music move me? but it doesn't move these other people. And then there's all this music that that really moves a lot of other people and doesn't mean anything to me at all. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, you know, just trying to figure out those, those questions was what was driving my, my academic career. And it fits perfectly into interpretation. I was in college in the mid-60s. And by 1967 every Friday and Saturday night on the back patio of the university center, there was a guy from Canada who was a wonderful guitarist singer. He was one of those people with the harmonica on a little stand that hung from his chest <laughs> and he could do, and we would have a hootenanny every Friday and Saturday night out there. And uh, soon I'm learning that Pete Seeger and Jean Baez and all of these incredible musicians that came out of the sixties protest music and the, Oh, so when mm -hmm. I became a state park interpreter, I built an outdoor amphitheater to do Saturday night campfire programs. And once a month I did an open stage mic night mm -hmm. for blue glass, old time traditional music. And I thought it might attract, you know, 20 people and, two groups or something. And what it really attracted was eight or nine groups and 300 people. And wow. it was fun. <laughs> and I played with a group. They, they wanted me playing because it looked good to have someone with a park ranger uniform on stage, despite the fact that he was perhaps not keeping up and playing the wrong chord at the wrong time and didn't do a lead very well. So <laughs> I, I've had the luxury of being a, a guest celebrity in two bands that I didn't deserve to be in. So, uh, but um, when you, did you learned the term interpretation when you were at uh, Library of Congress? No, no. We, you know, we would say um, we're interpreting this, you know, but that was, that, that was that was common in the humanities disciplines, you know, and, and a lot of what folklore is about as, you know, as a scholarly subject, you know, it's, um, I like to say, you know, it, it, it studies 
is studying the meaningful connections that people create um, with between themselves and their past and place and other people. Um, and then obviously, you know, that's all shaped in the present and then it shapes what they're doing in the future, you know, but it's all about connections and what things mean to people. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten in trouble with public history and oral history because, because as, as a folklorist, we look at what people think happened and how they are then shaping or making their decisions based on what they think, you know, and we're not trying to find out the true facts, you know, because that's irrelevant to people, really. <laughs> if we want to understand people's behavior, we right. have to understand what what they think. So a lot of what in what interpretation is um, in in folkloristics, you know, is we're we're trying to understand what people's motivations were and how they explain things, you know. So so we help them interpret themselves to the public. You know, and, and sometimes we have to translate that that interpretation. Um, it's very it's very on the ground working with people, you know, and then you know rather than like sitting in our office and saying, "Oh, this is what this means," you know, we ask people, "What does this mean?" <laughs> and then and then we we try to present that in a way that helps other people understand. You know, so they might need, need to know the history of that area to understand why people are making that choice. Or they might need to know the natural environment. You know, so so we did a lot of interpretation, you know, but but it wasn't wasn't called interpretation in, in the same you, way that this one. When did you encounter NAI, National Association for Interpretation? You know, there were there were one or two folklorists who who were involved in interpretation. Um, and then a, a lot of folklorists were working with living history museums. You know, so, so there was a little bit of it filtering in from that. And so then someone, you know, someone had told me about the NAI meeting in Vancouver. And I was, at the time, I was working a lot on, on using culinary tourism as a way to you know, educate people or help people understand other cultures. And uh, it sounded very relevant to me. So I went out there and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, these people have already developed all this. So there's a system, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, so the ideas that we had, you know, because we, we we definitely had all the, the like, kind of like the philosophical foundations that fit in with the systems and the methods, you know, that, that were being developed um, in NAI, so I felt like this this is a perfect <laughs> perfect meeting. the The other thing that happened in Vancouver, I really enjoyed the conference, and you know felt like you know this is this is definitely something that I want to pursue. And then there was a banquet, and the food was wonderful. But for decoration, they had ground cherries all around the. All, well, that's like decorating the table. And I asked several people what they were, and no one knew. And the staff members didn't know. And so finally, I just went in and tasted one, and they were tasty. You know, but I thought it could be poisonous for all I know. You know, and it struck me that, you know, that here was something, you know, that we were all overlooking. And, and food in general you know, now food is so trendy, but we forget it wasn't trendy, you know, 2007, <laughs> you know, it, it was just starting to be, um, and it didn't occur to people to think about what what is this? Is this a food? You know, and ground cherries are indigenous, they were used by a lot of the native groups, um, and now they're being, they actually were being grown by Amish, a lot of the Amish farmers in, in Ohio. So, and I, I brought some home. I have them growing all over my yard now. <laughs> uh, 1970s, when I was a park interpreter, I did a, about three times a year, you know, the books 
uh, stalking the wild asparagus and what uh, came out. And I was doing natural foods dinners as part of campfire programs. And I almost always cranked homemade ice cream and had sassafras tea and the ice cream would have local blueberries uh, and walnuts. Oh, yeah. and whatever. Yeah. So I, I found it, I'd never heard the term thematic used for interpretation. And yet I always thought in terms of the food ought to fit the event. And, mm-hmm. and I've had such, I mean, I was thrilled to hear about your work with food and culture because I, I remember, have such memories of uh, being at Tumacockery Mission at an NAI meeting in Arizona and a Tahana Odom woman was standing out back. She spoke no English and no Spanish, but she was making tortillas by an Arno, a beehive-shaped clay oven, and oh, yeah. a person who walked up to do it. And again, you had no way to for her to explain it to you. She simply demonstrated and then let you eat it with some of her cactus salsa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was cool. And then I we did a trainers course for the certified interpretive guide program in Tuscany and a group out of Fort Collins, Colorado called experience plus Uh, Rick price was a geographer who became a tour operator all over Europe, leading bicycle tours. And here he's got a PhD in geography. And so Mm -hmm. uh, he asked us to do the training there to train a bunch of his guides and his daughter would come around every meal. And we're in San Quirico, which is in a World Heritage Valley in Italy. And she would come uh-huh. around every meal and explain everything on the plate, why it was being served, what it meant to the local people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be a way. I mean, what a way to enjoy a meal where she would simply tell us that this isn't just crusty <laughs> bread with some tomatoes on it. This is yeah. a, an appetizer with traditions behind it that are important to local people here. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I should mention, too, that the, the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, um, you know, it was an annual event. And they emphasize it's folk life. You know, it's not it's not a folk festival. It's an educational event. Um, but also it's supposed to be entertaining too. Um, and they they started including because it, it was being developed by um you know by by folklore scholars, most of whom were from the University of Pennsylvania, which was part of what drew me to, to that particular university. You know, but they they always included food, not just as refreshment, you know, but as a part of culture. Um, you know, and it was kind of, I sort of think of interpretation with food, it can be, food can be a medium or it can be a destination for interpretation, you know, so you can be using it to teach about the culture, um, you know, but you can also use it to teach about the food itself. So people appreciate the food and, and understand that, you know, um, you know, and at the Smithsonian, they were they were doing a little bit of both, you know, without without knowing interpretive strategies, you know. But um, so they do they do food demonstrations and talk it through, you know, so that people could start understanding what the place of that of that particular dish was or the ingredients, you know, their place in that culture and what they might mean, um, and and help people appreciate the complexity of dishes, you know, frequently, oh, you know, would anyone, why would anyone eat that? Or that's, that's too simple. (laughs) You know, it's not really cooking, you know, and, and um, there are things that are very simple, very meaningful. You know, think about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, you don't have to go to culinary art school to make those, but, you know, (laughs) that's pretty meaningful. if We start looking back in our histories, you know, you know, so, I, I was aware of the possibility of using food in interpretation, you know, because of the festival, then also because of some of the living history museums I'd been to, 
at Jamestown and um, and Plymouth Plantation, you know. But you know, it was it was always just kind of set up art. This is what people ate back then, and then that was it, you know, <laughs> you know. And I say, oh, but there's so much more. <laughs> well, I I think it's exciting because. Uh... Uh, first of all, Lisa and I, my, my wife, Lisa Brochu, who is an interpretive planner and trainer, mm -hmm. uh, she and I are hooked on the British baking show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to me, it is food interpretation because, I mean, mm -hmm. what they're doing in each show is people are trying to stay on the show and not get thrown off the islands, so to speak, for not being in the top <laughs> or whatever. But right. At every show, they're giving them assignments to do that they'll refer to as a technical food challenge. But it ends; they end mm -hmm. up explaining this is from the 1700s. This would have been a normal food to be served in a Yorkshire village. This oh. would be the tart they would have made, and you're going to make it the way <laughs> they get back then. And I'm fascinated because I'm not just learning about this cool mm -hmm. food on the thing. And sometimes we try the recipes later, but I'm finding mm -hmm. out what was behind it. And, uh, and now we went to Ireland last year and I know you have a daughter in Ireland, don't you? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> in food, working in food? No, no. She went over, um, she grew up doing Irish dancing, step oh, dancing. Okay. So, so she went over to do a master's degree in anthropology of dance. Oh wow! At the, the University of Limerick has a um, I'm not sure the exact name of it now. It might be like World Music and Dance program. So she went over. She did a master's. She loved it, and and then started working for a sociological research group, and was going out interviewing people and. She really liked it, and so she applied for a sociology program and started doing that. And then, then she met an Irish boy. Ah, <laughs> that so, yeah, yeah. So, so she was she was teaching sociology and and anthropology, um, you know, at at the University of Limerick. So she's she's finishing her PhD now. I mean, okay. you know in her dissertation through now so and and then she started um she had been teaching irish dance when she was in high school and college in, in the u.s and when she went to ireland people would say oh that's nice but you trained in america didn't you uh, <laughs> yeah it was like she had an american accent <laughs> yeah. yeah so so and you know she didn't want to be I mean, there, there's so many Americans that go over and like, oh. you know, try to be on their <laughs> So, um, but she she goes to a dance school and and enjoys dancing for events with them. And you know, she danced in the St. Patrick's Day parade. And <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> yeah. So she she has a lot of fun doing that. I'm aware that you have been working on a book, and we we can't talk about the publisher because you're in a negotiated process uh, to get it published, but your book is a, about food and culture and interpretation. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. So it's interpretation with food, interpretation through food. Great. Um, and what, what I try to do is give people all the background ideas and concepts so that when it comes down to interpreting in this particular instance with this particular audience with this particular food you know they, they have all these resources to draw from to figure out what's going to work you know and you know what are the goals of like this particular museum you know there's you know they always have to be aware of, of things like that parts of it in different places and you know and, and people do do find it useful so there, are, it's it's hard. I know. I also do do a lot of educational programs with teachers and and you know, develop you know materials for teachers. You know, and and a a very nice teacher came over to me one time and said, "This is fascinating," but 
we don't have time to think about all these ideas. Can you just give me the handouts? <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I, you know, I was kind of horrified at first, but I realized, well, no, you know, you know, teaching, especially, you know, K through 12 teaching, you know, you're there at 730 and there's, whoa, you know, you, know, you don't get a chance to even use the restroom, you know, until 330 or whatever, you know, and then, 3.30, you're still not finished. You have to grade and prepare for the next day. So really, you know, yeah, I mean, this is, you, you can't load people with too much. You know, so, sometimes people just need directions. Start here and go here. You know, but they're always going to run up against issues in order to know how to deal with those effectively. Then having all that background on, you know, what is food? You know, why are people so emotional about it? Um, what is interpretation? You know, that's when when they have obstacles. That's when it helps. <laughs> All that background helps. They kept telling me in Italy, you know, that the identity of the food is not just that it's Italian food; it's that it's fresh, that it's farm to table. Mm -hmm. That yes, uh, we don't have a lot of intermediaries. We're not interested in somebody processing it or packaging it. Yes. And, yes. And my goodness, for the 10 days or 12 days we were there, it was just wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, and, and that's, you know, when when I'm talking about food to, to other people, um, I try to I try to help them understand that, you know, there's there, there's a logic, you know, to to every every food system, you know, and I like to talk about, you know, Different regions, different groups of people have have different food aesthetics and food ethos. And to understand why they're eating the things they do, why they make the food choices they make, you need to understand what that aesthetic is and what that ethos is and where it came from. And living in Northwest Ohio, I'm surrounded by industrial agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I when I first came out here, I was thinking, oh, there's gonna be so much good fresh produce and all. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, it's you know, soybeans and, and field corn. So and I remember, you know, going to um some of my first potluck dinners, you know, like church suppers and and green bean casserole and you know hash brown casserole with potato chips. I mean, the stuff is very tasty, but you really regret it after <laughs> after eating, you know. And they've completely bought into the whole industrial food system. You know, and you know, so so that that was my response. You know, someone coming from, you know, from southern cooking, which is very, very different. You know, everything is from scratch. And living overseas with you know all this exotic, you know, what people here would consider exotic. Sure. You know, but a lot of a lot of very fresh vegetables and all, you know, and, um, you know, so at first I just kind of like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't like this, this cuisine. Um, but, you know, then, then I started looking at it more and I really credit the field of folklore, <laughs> you, know, you know, for, you know, this kind of perspective. Um, I was trying to understand why, you know, why are people eating this food? They know it's not healthy for them. In fact, everybody, talks about it. Said, oh, it's all comfort food. I can't help myself, you know. And, you know, so I started doing doing a lot of research on on the food. And I've written several articles on green bean casserole, how that became a tradition, you know, among a lot of families and why that's a logical thing to happen. You know, it's not it's not stupidity or laziness or poor taste. You know, yeah. you know? um and then and I've written written about that also in terms of sustainability, because you know, if we want to sustain the culture out here and that and that the food of that culture, the, the food culture is very heavily industrialized, you know, and I don't really want to preserve that. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not healthy for the planet or for us. You know, but you can't just help. Well, you can't, but it's very unsuccessful. It's, it's not. It's not effective to say to people, "You have to change your lifestyle." You know, what you're eating is is unhealthy. You have to help people understand. You know, how did they get 
how did they get to this place? And and then what can you do to change? You know, and and maybe something as simple as, you know, leaving out the potato chips. You know, use use almonds or something. You know, you know for, for your green bean casserole, you can make it healthier in that way. So, and this really struck me when my daughter. My children were all vegetarian, vegan, and you know, very, very concerned about ethical eating. Right. Um, not not for health reasons, but you know, to change the world. <laughs> and my daughter came home from college and said she was gonna make green bean casserole for Thanksgiving. I said, What? You know, we never have green bean casserole. She said, But mom, it's a Midwestern tradition. We were all born here. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. You know, three, all three of them were born were born here. So she made it out of um, organic produce, and you know, she used almonds. You know, everything was fresh from scratch. Everything was vegan. <laughs> it, it was very tasty, and and I realized she needed that sense of place of connection to a place, and she knew the dish because. All of her friends were talking about it. And sometimes they talked about, oh, this is so gross. But it was still something that everyone expected to have. <laughs> so she she kind of needed that to center herself, you know, recognizing that people do need to feel connected to place, you know, or to their past. And, it, and if that past comes with lots of unhealthy food, you know, you can't just cut it off. You need to find some way to 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 make changes, but still maintain that connection. So I I developed a um, kind of a, a graphic and, and a concept to talk about sustainability, um, in which everyone has a tree, a food tree, and they all have roots to that tree that goes into their past, you know, and. And th those roots include the region, you know, their their family background, religion, their um, the socioeconomic class, all, all that type of thing, you know. And then and then the the branches of the tree are the branches of sustainability, and then the trunk is what they actually are eating now. And all of that's affected by the climate around that tree, you know, how much money they're making, you know, <laughs> you know what their current occupation is. You know, but the point of that is if you want a tree to grow, you can't just cut it off from its roots. You have to start feeding, you know, feeding those roots with other things, adding new roots, you know. And so I use that graphic that it tends to be very effective around here where people are coming out of an industrial food system and, and so many of their livelihoods are dependent on that. You know, they work in food processing plants. You know, they have factory farming. Sure. So um, it, it's a gentle way <laughs> yeah. to try to help people make some changes you know, for a more sustainable food system. I have a grandnephew in North Carolina who is uh, now has two, I think they're vegan. They're either vegetarian or vegan. I think they're vegan. Mm -hmm. Fast food restaurants. Really? Is, is he in Asheville by, by any uh, chance? No, I think it's uh, down in Durham area. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, uh, but again, ethical choices on his part, but he, he mm -hmm. really got into the idea of it, it ought to be really good food. It ought to be really sourced right. And it's doing well for him. I think mm -hmm. it's been so exciting for farmers markets to come back. And yes. I, I want to go back to the nature center I ran in the 80s and do a farmer's market. I, I can't believe I missed that as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Oh, as yeah. A, yeah. I tried to do as many things like that as I could, but I had never heard of a farmer's market. And uh, when they came along, I went, boy, I missed that. That would have been a great thing at the nature center <laughs> every Saturday. <Yeah. laughs> that, that would have been that. Well, and you know, I've been, I've been working locally with, there, there's a, um, a local historical museum and center. Um, and then about 
about seven years ago, they opened up kind of a, a living history farm and they're, they actually have it as a working farm trying to raise some of the crops, you know, that would have been historical to the area. Um, and I've done a number of programs with them. You know, we, we did a whole series on holiday foods throughout the year. Um, we, we did a big thing last year on, on foods from farm and factory, I think it was, you know, you know and, and, and talked about how, I mean, so many people here are working on growing things that then go to factories. And there's a, a Campbell Soup factory about 45 minutes west of here. And, you know, as part of the landscape, you see these gigantic holding tanks that are painted like Campbell Soup cans. You know, so so when people are talking about local food in this area, all this processed food is part of their landscape. <laughs> so, you know, so you have to recognize that, you know, when, when people are, are talking about what food is meaningful to them and, well, and why they're making the choices they are. I understand that. We, we're, uh, there are about 800 Kona coffee farms and we have a little one acre coffee estate. And part of what we, our brag on our coffees are their their coffee estates. If you like our coffee, it came only from our place. And if you buy Kona coffee at the grocery store, it came from one of the eight or 10 big farms on the island that get their mm -hmm. coffee from 50 different farms and blend it. And you may like it, but um uh, it's probably not the same flavor exactly every time you get it because they're blending all these different things and they can't perfectly do that. The other thing we always tell people is that when you roast it from medium to medium dark roast or to dark roast, you are charring the coffee, which gives it a charred coffee commonality in its flavor that works well for the big guys, but mm -hmm. a farmer doesn't like it because their coffee has a distinctive flavor based on the land, the uh, uh, the weather, the varieties of uh, typica, which is our variety of coffee we're growing. There's just a lot of interpretation that goes into selling Kona coffee. And um, it's it's been one of the joys for me in retirement. What we call retirement is where you find other things to do you'd rather do. <laughs> right? That's right. You <laughs> I know, you know, or, you know, and in, in the case of people who spent all their life grading papers and, you know, writing lectures, it's like, finally, I can write the things I want to write. <laughs> yeah, because you taught as a junk faculty for many, many years in Bowling Green. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and frequently, frequently I was full time there, um, you know, but. I also, I mean, you know, looking back now is the kind of thing that you kind of kick yourself. So I, I turned down um, some tenure track positions because I wanted to do this combination of things, and 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 I had three young children at home too. But um, you know, so I actually started out in the music department and taught my survey of world music and ran the music appreciation program and. Did, did things like that, you know, but I really wanted to start doing more stuff with food and culture in general, you know, so I, I switched over to the popular culture program, which was, it was very heavily popular culture and, and folkloristics. So I usually taught out of there. I was also in American culture studies. And, and then with the um, recession, everything, all the funding was pulled. On different things. So looking back, it, it, was a, it was a very difficult transition for me, but now I'm actually very grateful that I got exposed to all these other things because I, I moved from um, American culture studies and popular culture to tourism, leisure, event planning. Oh, gee. Um, <laughs> I know. And, you know, I, I was asked to, to develop a master's degree in a master's program in culinary tourism and then and then got over there and there's internal politics and 
you know, and all that shifted. So I was introduced to these other disciplines and, and interpretation was very much, it should have been a part of, of the recreation program. Um, you know, and that's actually when I was working on my certification to be, to be a certified guide, um, you know, and I found it very, very useful. So I started applying a lot of those ideas to my classes also, you know, not, not, not just, you know, other work. Um, and I started actively looking at how it could fit into tourism, you know, because I always felt tourism should be a force for good, <laughs> you know, and it can obviously be a, be a force for economic development, you know, but it gets so complicated, um, you know, and, and when I was starting out in the humanities, and in anthropology, people tended to think of tourism was automatically essentially evil. You know, it was automatically exploiting other people. Um, and I look at that and say, well, I love to travel. I'm not exploiting these people, you know. And, and you know, there's there are all these other ideas. I mean, I start realizing, not, you know, because you know, I'm very privileged. I didn't recognize that there was exploitation. But at the same time, how else do we get to know other other cultures, other other people without being open and trying to experience them? And, and so I started actively looking at how tourism could be used for positive means. Um, you know, and that that's where I found interpretation very, very useful. I've actually done a, a number of presentations on incorporating interpretation into culinary tourism. You know, when when people are trying to design a food destination, you know, what, what can they do, you know, to make sure that it is an equitable, respectful kind of experience? See, and to me, some of the best experiences I've, I've had, we lead uh, eco-tours to Tanzania and to Rwanda, and in Tanzania, for example, we go to a community called Mtowa Mabu, and uh, it's an agricultural community that has all 120 tribes of Tanzania. People from those tribes were brought in because there were jobs in agriculture there. But mm -hmm. the Dutch International Cooperative Agency helped them develop a community tour to try to bring more tourists. Tourists were driving through their community to get to the big national parks in Serengeti, but not stopping. And so they, mm -hmm. they do a cultural tour that takes you out into their banana groves and teaches you why they grow 30 varieties of bananas. And then they take you to a lunch fixed by local women over an open fire. And it's wonderful. It is mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. terrific. And it tells you why they're growing what they're growing and, and why it matters to them and, and how it relates to their local cultures. It's fairly common, you know, to talk about tourism, you know, can be a window or food can be a window in, into another culture. You know, but I think part of what interpretation does is it takes us further. It's not just a window, it's also a mirror. So we start understanding why something seems strange well it's strange to us because of our background you know it's not strange to these people that grew up with it so you know so when you're learning about it it's important to learn what it means to those people but then we can also take that further step and start reflecting on oh you know this is why it's strange <laughs> this is my connection to it so and then i think you know that's where we really start seeing like real learning about not just about another culture, but about ourselves and our own place in in culture, but also in the world in general. I, I was working at the this is the Dayton Folklife Festival, which was modeled after the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. And I, I had helped them to develop a section on Latino food. And there was a woman there that I knew that I'd worked with before. 
And she lives in Northwest Ohio and her background was, she was um, Tex-Mex. You know, it was a Mexican family that lived in, in Texas, you know, you know, before Texas was started, part of the U.S. So she was giving, she gave demonstrations on making tortillas. Mm. She grew up using wheat. They use wheat up here in Ohio. That's what they have accessible, but that's what they used in Texas too. So, so she was made, she was doing these demonstrations. And then we had what's called a narrative stage where we have several people talking about their traditions and, you know, I'll ask a question and, and they each take a turn answering it. Well, there were, there was also a cook who was from Mexico, but had, had come fairly recently um, to Ohio. And she started saying that the tortilla, the, the wheat tortillas were not authentic Mexican. So it had to be corn, you know, because wheat was brought in by the Spanish, you know, so, you know, so, and she had the other woman in tears, you know, saying that it's not real Mexican. And you know, this poor woman was kind of being attacked from all sides, you know, so, so, so I stepped in. I said, okay, you know, you know, part of what this shows you is that you know, food carries a lot of meaning for us, a lot more than, than than we realize. The idea that you're getting emotional about this, I mean, this is something that's very, very meaningful. And we can see there are different histories here, too. And her history is just as valid as your history. You know, so, you know, your your personal experiences are what we're looking for here. And then we'll let... UNESCO or someone like that decide what's actually authentic, but your experiences are your experiences. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that that's valid. <laughs> so I think, I think it worked, you know, the, the woman from Mexico was, oh, but corn. So yeah, you know, but think about you know, the 400 years wheat has been around, you know, and, you know, and why was it that wheat was growing there? you know, rather than corn. And, you know, so we ended up get, getting a very interesting discussion going. And and then I was able to ask the audience too, are there things in your life that are really meaningful? You know, that other people would kind of laugh as, oh, no, that's not a tradition, you know. And, and I always bring up green bean casserole because that's just very, very, very popular out here, you know. But even things like bologna sandwiches or, you know, it's, you know, peanut butter. I, I personally think peanut butter and jelly sandwiches should be the national dish. I think the potential with food being used in interpretation is tremendous because food is something everyone has experience with. Absolutely. It's also something that we overlook. Yeah. And, and so bringing it out and, and helping people see that it's meaningful they suddenly start looking at their whole lives differently that, oh, they had no idea, <laughs> you know, that this particular item, you know, or this particular practice, you know, could be considered a tradition, could be considered something that's expressing their identity or somehow reflects their place. So I think using food to help people understand things like that can then, you know, take them in so many other places. So it's, it's not just about food. <laughs> it's not just about culture. <laughs> I'm going to look forward to your book. Thank you for being with me today. And I, I hope we get to someday sit down and pick. It's been great to catch up. Well, thanks for joining Dr. Lucy Long and I today. Next week, November 10th, I'll be talking story with Tobias Merriman, my son and Assistant Director of CVEX, a program at Southern Illinois University, assist assisting professors in application of artificial intelligence and virtual reality. We're going to talk about how guides and interpreters might use AI to enhance their tours, talks, and programs. Lisa and I will teach a virtual certified interpretive guide course from December 4th to 13th via Zoom, and you can register at interpnet.com on their training calendar. Thanks again to Mark Stolfer for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time it's Yin and Yang from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week.
Aloha.